It's called The Science Podcast. A couple of atheists that run this podcast. So I thought you'd be interested to hear what they say. This is only one little bit. It's like it's over half an hour. And I couldn't play you the whole thing because I'd have to have so many beeps in it bleeping out the expletives. Ah, thanks so much, Ken, for that lovely introduction. Tonight's episode. <laughs> tonight's episode of the Science Enthusiast Podcast is brought to you by Kofefe. Kofefe. For when you want to distract the world from the fact that you're not going to sign the Paris Agreement. Yeah. Yeah, let's, let's, let's distract. Fuck the world. Have you ever been there? Have you ever it's, been to the world? It's pretty it's pretty shitty. So it's it like awful. Yeah. So so you're you know, you're Donald Trump one night, you're like, I don't know, either half asleep or drunk or who or you just fucking yeah, can't yeah. type with your little not. hands. And like, you know, you you just make this weird tweet and you're like, yeah, because I'm not gonna sign this thing. Distraction. I think the most important, yeah, the most, the, the most important here uh, is that we say kofefe, and it's not kofifi, it's not kofe, I don't even know, I'm not even going to dignify the other third way that people are pronouncing this. It's kofefe. Uh, it's kofefe. It's kofefe. And if it you is. say it's not, you're a terrorist, and the terrorists win. Totally. A- absolutely. And that's, and that's the real important thing here, because like, it, it already works, like we're talking about it instead of... Yeah. <sighs> kofefe. The meme of the damn day. You, damn you, Trump! You figured us out. <laughs> we are, we are, we are, but simpletons to your. Oh God! I know. I know. <laughs> oh God! Damn it! Well, hello, and thanks for listening to the Science Enthusiast Podcast. Uh, my name is Dan Broadbent, and uh, as always, I'm joined by my 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 brilliance. It's what it says here. Google Doc. I feel yeah. like this is like the third week in a row it's been brilliant. Well, because I just, because I just cut, I cut and paste. I cut and paste. And then sometimes I don't go back and change that. I was focused on Kafefe today. I didn't, I didn't, Cafefe. I wasn't focused on my adjective for myself today, but like, don't I always want to be called brilliant every week? Yes. Yes. But then if, but then if everybody's brilliant, then nobody's brilliant. I know. I know. So it's, oh. or we I, have to have hierarchies of brilliance. I know we do. So I'll I'll think of something different for myself next week. I will. But but can, for I mean, now, we could even just go with my different friend. Yeah. Now. I mean, I I am. I am I'm different than your other friends. I'm different <laughs> than out than other people. I'm You're certainly flake. something. <laughs> I have something. I am something. That's and we'll on just that leave note, it at that. Why don't you tell us something about our god of the week? Yeah, this one I'm just kind of like I've, I don't really have much to say, but I got a, we got a message from um, our friend Buck Mulligan the other day with a, um, with a picture that, I mean, that everybody has seen at this point um, saying that, like, <laughs> make this the God of the Week. And so because we wanna, I want to make my friend happy, um, the God of the Week is um, it's not so much a God. It's just let's just worship that glowing orb that Donald Trump touched when he was in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> this is just Buck's fault. Like, yeah, he, I don't. I don't know the backstory on this. I, I know the meme because we know the meme because it's like the kind of thing. It's this this picture that everyone has seen, and it's the kind of picture that you can that somebody has photoshopped. I think it's like Saruman. I think that's the name of the character from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Is photoshopped into it, and it doesn't look like it's photoshopped. It's like, oh, he was there. It's this just totally like, oh, happened. Yeah. You know, because but it's yeah. but it's Trump and some Saudi Arabian leaders yes. touching a glowing or like they have all have their hands mm-hmm. on a glowing orb and and they're taking a picture it's like photo op yeah i don't right i i don't understand what the what that the orb is what the Mm -hmm. purpose is yeah or 
or anything about life itself at this point. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't understand don't. anything full stop. Like that's kind of it. Um, but, but yes, so it's just the kind of thing where make your own conclusions as to why we would, why, why they would be doing that. It's just sort of a weird photo op, um, that looks like, you know, it should have happened in the Lord of the Rings, except there's the leader of our country. Right. And, yeah. and I don't know if you saw this, but there is a, uh, another picture with the prime ministers of the Nordic states. Yes. Yes. I wanted to talk. Yes. All, oh. They're all leaning in, touching, uh, what appears to be a soccer ball. Yes, they are. Um, so, but in a, in an extremely similar fashion and, I'm, the story I'm reading here from Iceland Monitor uh, dot mimble dot is that's <laughs> just reading reading what it says here because yes. uh, it, it's I'm, it's not something that I'm familiar with so that means it's funny and I must make fun of it because I feel uncomfortable. Uh, it says they're not actually trying to troll Trump and that it was just uh, they just all wanted to touch a ball <laughs> together. Yeah, because but you know what like. I want them to just be like, yeah, we we were trolling Trump, uh, they, and we're no way they weren't. Of course they were. I mean, I I definitely think they. I'm gonna and, I, and like credit for that. because this even has the yeah, yeah, this even has the original uh, <laughs> the original meme. It's so this is turning good. to a why we love the internet segment. It is like it, uh, they they trolled okay they trolled well and they trolled hard. And I'll so allow it. We there's will also allow it. yeah. There's also uh, one where they mashed up Hocus Pocus, uh, or I guess that's Bette Miller, like, but also. Yeah. Uh, Bat Miller, uh, we have some words for her about things. Uh, <laughs> she needs <laughs> not to tweet stuff, about yeah. Yeah, don't engineering. Tweet. Uh, I mean, there's there's other ones too that are, that are also good. So we'll we'll put that in the notes. So yes. you get a little little early why we love the internet there. Yes. Yeah. So um. So Buck, thanks for making us talk about this. And uh, hey, and, yeah. and we didn't at no point in time did I want to be like, hey, fuck you. But fuck Buck. you, Buck Mulligan. Oh, can I can I just say in the show notes, um, let's put the link to the episode that he and I did about cults for fuck you, Buck Mulligan, because it was fun. So this is kind I, of I like God and religion. Not. Yeah, our God is Buck Mulligan, the God of going on podcasts. I don't. I didn't consent to that. I well, I just I just went for it. So um, so yeah. four pounds flour and of the book eight flavors the untold story of american cuisine sarah welcome to the show hi i'm so happy to be here so i i recently finished reading your book um and we will rec i recommend it highly to all of our listeners and everything um just as a food fan i thought it was a really interesting take on american cuisine and like these are all flavors that I actually really enjoy too, personally. So awesome book. And um, I guess Thank I you. want to start with how did you kind of like get into this whole like intersection of food and, and history? I mean, I know you have kind of an interesting story of working at one of those, like, was it a colonial type of? No, like, it was 1848. Okay. So it so was like yeah. pre-Civil War, verge of the modern era was was kind of the idea. Year of Seneca, Seneca Falls. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, that was my first job in high school. My mom told me I need to get a job. She was a manager at this particular museum. So she said, this is what you're going to do. And I was really not pumped about it as a 16 year old <laughs> kid. I was really, I was like, this is going to suck. I can't believe I'm getting forced to do this. 
but it obviously ended up working out, changed my life and career. I work with amazing people, and it's the first time that I work with historic food, obviously. We yeah. cooked every day. Um, and in the beginning, it wasn't necessarily that aspect, although I was really fascinated by it, and I enjoyed learning how to work with like the wood-burning stove in the house that I worked in. Uh, and I went to art school and just continued to be entranced with this idea of the interpretation of history and reenactments and uh, using all of your senses to understand history as well. Because when you're in grade school, it's all like memorizing the dates of battles. And to me, that doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't teach you anything. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't invoke humanity which mm -hmm. it was the big shift for me when I worked in a museum and had to wear the clothes and smell the smells, you know? Yeah. So uh, after I graduated, I came to New York City and I began working for New York Magazine's blog, Grub Street, and was uh, their video producer. So I was in, you know, meeting the best chefs and in the most amazing kitchens. And I just realized that there was this interest in where our food comes from and people were looking to the past to seek inspiration. And I kept sort of tuning into that idea and I realized with my sort of unique cross section of, you know, his, history experience, museum experience, art school experience, that I was someone who could bridge the gap between academia and the food world in this really unique way. I saw a niche and I started my blog, Four Pounds Flour, still running to this day. And I said, I don't know what to expect from this, but um, as long as I'm having fun, I'm going to keep doing it. Well, and I mean, what was really cool about like reading your book, too, was that you really bring like this aspect of of stories and storytelling to talking about food like you're you're telling the stories of these flavors and of these people that that really were instrumental in american cuisine so like i think that method is like it can resonate with anybody you know who wants to know more about you know where all this comes from yeah and that's definitely the public historian in me because i um just when I learn something interesting, I want to communicate it with as many people as possible. And I, like I think any other human, I'm really attracted to human stories. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a great way to talk about history. And food is a great gateway to those human stories. And well, so, I mean, yeah. everybody eats. So. Exactly. <laughs> yes. and, and that's in a way why I was drawn to it, not just because everybody eats, but also because I always felt comfortable. You know, I was working with musicians and uh, fashion designers too at New York Magazine, but it was the chefs that always made me feel at home. Because not only does any, everybody eat, but everyone can talk about food and talk mm -hmm. about what they like and what's good and what memories it evokes. So it's a very comfortable place to begin a conversation as well. And so in, in your book, you ended up defining these, um, these eight flavors that you, that you are talking about as, you know, kind of defining um, American cuisine. Can you, like, Correct. you don't have to, like, list and talk about all of them, but are there any particular ones that you were really drawn to? Well, the book started, uh, the idea sort of started with vanilla, because when I was baking back in my 1848 life, I mm -hmm. noticed that none of the recipes used vanilla. And how bizarre is that? Because today we can't imagine even a chocolate cake in 2017 has vanilla in it. And none of these recipes for cakes and cookies were using vanilla. Mm -hmm. So I realized then by the end of the 19th century, vanilla was in cookbooks just as commonly as it is today. So I thought, okay, something has to have happened there. There has to have been a turning point. And the turning point in this case is that uh, vanilla is native to Central America. People transplanted it other places, but it, it's an orchid that blossomed, but it didn't fruit into the vanilla beans. 
And it was because um, they needed native pollinators. So a method had to be deduced to hand pollinate it. And actually that method was discovered by a 12 year old slave named Edmund Albius, a brilliant, a brilliant young man. Um, and so this was a major turning point. His discovery as a boy led the change the flavor of the food not only of america but of the world so i realized that oftentimes food and flavor comes to us through major turning points like that yeah that was that was an interesting story and then like vanilla too i mean i guess i didn't realize that it like it had a point when it just kind of started becoming in like everything and i know because i like to yeah. bake but you know it's like vanilla is one of those things where you know it kind of calls for like the the real stuff, but then there's the imitation vanilla. And I liked that mm -hmm, little mm -hmm. like anecdote you told in there about like having people taste test the different cookies, right? With, yeah. Like, the imitation, imitation and yeah. Versus all natural. Yeah. Because also people don't realize that over 90% of the vanilla that we consume day to day is as vanillin as artificial vanilla that's been synthesized in a lab. And I think that there is such a fear of chemicals nowadays, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to food. There's a lot of emotion tied to food that people are just genuinely horrified. But you have to stop and realize that vanillin is the primary flavor and aroma component of a vanilla bean. There are 200 and more other aroma and taste constituents to it um, that make it a very complicated and subtle flavor. But a lot of those chemicals don't stand up under high heat. So the little anecdote that you mentioned was basically I baked cookies, which out of all the things we bake have the highest internal temperature and did one batch with real vanilla and one batch with artificial vanilla. And uh, the taste testers, about 100 people, picked the artificial batch two to one. And actually Epicurious replicated that test recently and uh, got the exact same results as I did. So it's all about these are tools that we can use in our kitchen and where are the best places to use these tools. And as a side note, vanillin is vanillin, no matter what its source, the atoms don't have memories that don't remember where they came from. So there's no reason to be scared of it. It's the same chemical that is in natural vanilla ex uh, extract, just comes from a different source. So there, there's no homeopathic uh, version of vanilla out there? No, no. I mean, the way I think of it, too, is that there is a limited number of chemicals out there and everything in the world shares these chemical compounds. So vanillin's in a vanilla bean. It's also in a pine tree, um, a paper pulp. If a book is aging, it begins to smell like vanilla. And that's from vanillin that's oxidizing and turning from lignin, a pretty similar compound to vanillin. So to me, it's kind of incredible that um, these chemicals are shared by all sorts of different things in the world, uh, but other people find that frightening. Well, I like that you that you've just brought up the people's fear of of chemicals, but also like there is that emotional component when people are making choices around their food. And I mean, something we yeah. talk about a lot on this show and just in our own like projects that we're that Dan and I work on is issue of GMOs and biotechnology. So right. can, we, like, can we ask you your thoughts about, about GMOs, biotech? and Sure. And so, yeah. I, when I talk about GMOs, I, here's a very simple comparison that I make. So you, if there's the super ability of flying, right? Mm -hmm. And a superhero can fly and a super villain can also fly. Flying is the tool and it's mm -hmm. the hero or villain that is using that tool. So I think that the idea of GMO often gets conflated with companies like Monsanto, whose practices people might not necessarily agree with. 
but GMOs can also be used and have been used for really important things that have saved farmers' lives and livelihood, mm -hmm. have saved entire crops, and could potentially do a lot more for the world. I think the better question is not whether or not GMOs are dangerous, because there is absolutely no proof that they are dangerous. They are perfectly safe. The better question to ask is, is this an effective tool to feed the world? So I think we just have to begin to reframe that argument to be a little, a little, a little bit more logical um, and thinking about how we're going to feed the population. And I think it's fair to have that debate after it's reframed in that way. Is this a good tool, not is this tool evil? Because a tool itself cannot be good or evil. It's how it's put to use. I love that. Just the idea of reframing the conversation in a more rational light, because it's obviously very emotionally charged and fueled right now. But to to help people think more rationally about it, and then then you have the conversation coming from that. And place I don't know how to get there. Yeah. I find it very frustrating. I actually attended a, a panel uh, about GMOs at the Food Book Fair a couple years ago. And this is really, I went to learn about it. And there were a panel of four, two people were pro-GMO and two people were against. But they actually found the conversation just like me. None of those four people uh, felt that GMOs were dangerous. Two of them felt mm -hmm. they were effective and two of them felt they weren't. But when it came to the Q&A at the end of this, people were literally yelling at the people at this panel <laughs> saying, how can you say this? I know it's this. I know it's dangerous. I know it's deadly. There's been proof. There's a... And it was depressing for me because I had just sat for 45 minutes at the same panel and I learned things. Um, even from people, uh, it was the science writer for New York Times was probably the best panelist. She did an amazing series on GMOs for the Times where she was kind of dubious of them to begin with. But then after she was on the ground and reported it out, she became a huge supporter of GMOs. So it was frustrating because I don't feel like people came there to listen. I feel like they mm -hmm. already came there with a decision um, mm -hmm. and how they and had already decided how they felt about it. And the irony is that none of none of the people, even the people who were anti-GMO, felt they were dangerous, but that somehow was the audience's argument. I don't know if you've spent any amount of time in the comment section, uh, anytime any page Ugh. or anything, especially like non-science pages post anything about that. But that is, I mean, that's essentially it goes from one to I am absolutely the most angry person in the world right now. Uh, yeah. Very quickly. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because that's actually how I started the monosodium glutamate chapter in my book, because I feel like yeah. that is definitely another topic that really like. That's, makes... that's called a smooth segue. That was oh, a thank you. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, like, that, is, that is exactly where I wanted to go next, because, that is, because that's let's... the next thing yeah. on our notes. <laughs> that is because really, let's talk about something uh, else. I've been doing that, like, a lot yeah. of media recently. So <laughs> here I am. I'm getting good at this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So so talk to us about MSG. It's awful for us, right? Yeah. It gives us migraines. And we're uh, well, all you know, sensitive and to that's it. the funny thing. I am a legit migraine sufferer. Yep. <laughs> I get botulism toxin shot into my head to stop me from having migraines. And I used to avoid MSG because I thought it caused migraines. I believed in yeah. this sort of populist belief. Actually, until my brother, who is an organic chemist, as is my father, I think that definitely comes through in this book, um, yikes, basically scolded me. And he's like, no, 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 there's been lots of science that proves it's not true. And so I just like, Googled it, <laughs> and which I have to admit is is hard. Like when you go, when I was even looking up things for the chapter in the book, the first hits are always like MSG will kill you. It's horrible. But then when you start taking apart the actual studies and read the articles from um, sources that can be trusted, uh, from legitimate uh, news reporting, uh, 
it's everything has been completely debunked. Everything has been mm. completely debunked that there's absolutely nothing wrong with MSG. So like, in, like at this point, do you feel okay about like eating it, cooking with it, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And so not like, just as, as the white powder, but it's I think it's important to note that monosodium glutamate isn't synthesized. It's harvested. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes from fermentation. And that natural fermentation process means that there is naturally occurring MSG in a lot of foods that we eat, uh, including things like soy sauce is, is very, very high in MSG. And um, I, well, I mean, we can be clear, glutamate is, um, is, is, is protein. So glutamic acid is one of the amino acids that makes up all protein on the planet. So every source of protein from mussels to dairy has glutamate in it. And these glutamate chains, these amino acid chains can become unbound when um, a food is subjected to any sort of change of state, like fermentation, like aging, like heating. I'm sure there's other ones I'm forgetting. Um, These tend to unbind protein chains that releases free glutamate. And then especially foods that are really salty, like soy sauce, for example, or aged Parmesan cheese, those free glutamates then bind, uh, form an ionic bond with... um, salts, and then you have monosodium glutamate. It's, it's nothing more frightening than an amino acid, which is in our bodies right now, mm-hmm. and salt, which is also in our bodies right <laughs> now. And actually, horror of horrors, there's MSG naturally occurring, floating around in our bodies right now, too. So we're just poisoned. We are just, we are just slowly just decaying with MSG it is inside true. of us. And like, it's, we, if you it. have, and if you think you have an MSG allergy, you have to avoid breast milk, which is about 0.02% glutamate. You have to avoid also cannibalism. You cannot eat human brains because oh, glutamic man. acid. No. I know. No. If you have an allergy, you can't do it. Glutamic acid is <laughs> so the most that's, common that's why, neural that's why we transmitter. Don't eat, yeah, that's why we don't eat people. Got it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I, can, I can think of one of many reasons. <laughs> oh, I was I was gonna leave it at that. Uh, but I yeah, yeah well, I, that's I a good one. Of, yeah. <laughs> I can think of when I was in college, I had a roommate who was Vietnamese, and he had like. Uh, like the most enormous canister of yeah well first off it was this white powder at first and i'm like dude like what is this like are are we gonna have the cops like bust in here at some point but he was like no it's a zip sg and i was like oh that i heard that's bad for you but then even then i mean i'm like 20 at the time so i'm not that i'm smart now but uh you know you take a minute and then look past like just like you said whenever you type in msg the first first goddamn link that comes up is uh Mercola, and yeah. of course he's gonna say it's the, the title is is the silent killer lurking in your kitchen cabinets like yeah the, the silent killer somebody okay. told me is if is if the title of an article is a question the answer is always yes like that's always the implied <laughs> oh, answer yeah for sure let's click like it's clickbait it's perfect and it's like we are just or, gonna confirm your fears right here and it's yeah, yeah. or science yeah. proves this or science says this no that's probably bullshit and not at all what the article says yeah. I mean, Jeffrey Steingarten, the, you know, notorious, legendary food writer, you know, said in an essay, if MSG is bad for you, then why doesn't all of China have a headache? So <laughs> yeah. it seems to be only in, in America. Uh, I mean, we could just, <laughs> I live in Chinatown. I could just like ask somebody. And actually, Do you have one headache? of the things I brought up in my book do you have a headache? Is uh, even in the 70s when this was all sort of coming out that that people started to believe MSG was bad for you, they literally went to Chinatown and interviewed Chinese restaurant owners. And the restaurant owners thought these reporters were nuts. They're like, yeah. I eat this food. My family eats this food every day of my life. We're fine. Everybody's fine. 
And to me, it was even more fascinating that Americans, even though people were starting to accept this idea that MSG might make you sick, in the 70s, it was being treated like a hangover. So there was this idea you might not feel good after you went out to a Chinese restaurant. Uh, but it was like, it, it was, was compared to like, there's an idea that you might not feel good if you go drink all night. So it wasn't taken as this deadly poison. It was seen as the result of doing something that you love and enjoy. So you I was going to say, like, I don't over. feel good about after I go to a Chinese restaurant, but it's, I mean, it's for very different reasons than, uh, it's usually because I've stuffed myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I also think the most important point is we often it's called its nickname is Chinese restaurant syndrome. That is really oh xenophobic. I've never heard of this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I only heard that in like when reading your book and I was like, oh, shit, that is that is totally like true. I just never heard it called that. But yeah. Yeah. It's like That's what it's called in all the earliest um, science reports. CRS, Chinese restaurant syndrome. And the point I make in the book is that the Chinese restaurants are nowhere near the biggest consumers of MSG. It's big companies like Kraft and Kentucky mm-hmm. Fried Chicken, American food, quote unquote. So it's also tied up with kind of a fear of foreignness, too. Well, it's like it's like these ideas around food, just like they they show up, people grab onto them like a meme or something that people just can't shake. Like so there's the MSG. There's like when you look at, gosh, so many like commercials for companies now talking about like eating clean food and like all this kind of oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Seems- it's a label ideas. you so, can understand. You can pronounce everything on this label. You're like, what are you talking about? It's like, like, do you want to pronounce all the chemicals like in a blueberry? Like, yeah. Do it's, you? Probably not. Everything is chemicals. All the chemicals are shared. Some of the deadliest poisons on the planet come from nature. So it's, you know, it's about a fairness in, in looking at what you want to eat. So it's, uh, yeah. And if anyone listening to this podcast is doubtful, and I don't, they might be, they might be. I encourage them to read the book. It's the MSG chapter is one of the ones that I am the most proud of because people who I consider these very like, I only eat organic, I only eat clean foods have come to me and said, I am really, really amazed. My friend actually went to, he only eats organic food and he actually went to Whole Foods and asked them if they had MSG in stock. And he ended up buying this thing called kelp extract, which Mm -hmm. is clearly MSG. It's just labeled like, yeah, yeah, disguise. It's labeled like all natural kelp extract. And I'm like, oh my God, that's Whole Foods MSG. That's hilarious. It's MSG undercover. It's like. Yes. Yes. (laughs) If anything called umami is MSG undercover. Umami Mm -hmm. is the word that that was that the scientists came up with to describe the taste sensation when he discovered MSG. So the code word for it is umami. Those sneaky, <laughs> sneaky marketers at places yeah. like Whole Foods. Like they, they just, they know and they know how yeah. to, how to capitalize on people's food fears. Yes. And it's sell their manipulation. It's, it's manipulation it's and it's feeding into the fear. Yeah, Totally. Now, all right, so just a few, like, I know we're, like, kind of needing to wrap up with time, but just a few questions, like, just for It's okay. I should just found out I'm, I'm good on time. Are you good on time? All right, so. She's, she's just, running late. Okay. So, like, in, in your book, you talked about, um, talked about MSG. You talked about soy as a flavor, curry, sriracha, which is one that I personally love. Like, what are, do you see any other food trends, like, on the horizon? Like, things that are, like, picking up steam? Flavors, yeah, definitely. Trends? 
one of the biggest sort of uh, connections that I made in writing this book is that war is a really great propagator for new food traditions. I write in the book about uh, the Mexican War. I write about uh, World War II and the Vietnam War. And I point out how people from this country, soldiers, men for the most part, but also nurses and workers, went to other countries, ate the food there, came home with a taste of that for that food. And then in the aftermath of these conflicts, there's often a big uh, migration or immigration into America, depending on the conflict. So people are coming from those countries and there is both this desire for these foods and flavors and the people who are immigrating here want those foods and flavors from home. So those are big shifts. So thinking about that, I've noticed that there is a growing trend for cuisine from the Middle East. And we have been engaged in the Middle East for over 25 years, I would say. We've been sending young men and women out yeah. there and they've been coming back. And so I actually then interviewed a friend of mine who uh, was a Marine and served several terms in Iraq and Afghanistan to see if this was true. And he really talked about all of the food that he ate over there and how much he craves it now that he's back in America. And of course, there is, well, at least for the moment, large amounts of immigrants and refugees coming from the Middle East forming communities and wanting those foods and flavors as well. So we've already seen it in things like words like za'atar being used more commonly and pomegranate molasses and uh, um, cumin, of course, and I make up a, and cardamom is a big one. And I really talk about rose water too, um, that these are big flavors on the horizon for us. And here I thought you were going to tell us like, well, World War Three is going to be great. Oh God! I mean, <laughs> it will. The topic of another podcast. But let's not hope we get there at least any time soon. Yeah. Um, but honestly, with the, the increasing attention on Korea, and we already have a pretty sizable immigrant group from Korea too. I think Korean food could also get bigger and bigger, but that's a little further down the line. And now you personally, like what do you have a favorite like or most interesting style of food or a fa and or a favorite meal that you have eaten? Like, do you have a best thing that you've ever eaten? A best thing that I've ever eaten. Oh, uh, wow. That's impossible. It's impossible, I mean, right? So, OK, yeah. so some what, what are some <laughs> things that you just absolutely love as far as food? Goes? I love the first cone of Mr. Softy in the summer. And I love when I, I live on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I live in Chinatown. And when I moved down here, one of my friends said, do you think you'll get tired of eating dumplings? And I said, I don't think that's possible. So I love <laughs> dumplings. And I, those are, I would say, two of my favorite, favorite things right now. And I love mint juleps. So I'm really excited for the Kentucky Derby next weekend in the start of mint julep season, the drink of the summer. Those are some of my greatest loves, I would say. Awesome. And now the like classic sort of question, like if you could eat dinner with anybody living or dead, like who would you invite to have dinner with you? Oh, my mom. I really like her. <laughs> if I, like she her? lives, yeah, she lives really far away. She lives in Ohio and I love oh. her and she helps me with all my projects and always is my support and uh, was a member of the International Skeptic Society. So oh, that's awesome. she's, she's my mama skeptic too. She's the one that taught me to be a skeptical, critical thinker. So if I could have my mom here for dinner right now, that would be the nicest thing in the world. That is awesome. So um, yeah, oh, that's, that's awesome. Your mom sounds like a fantastic person. Cause like, <laughs> she is to, indeed. Like, to, yeah, to, and to like inspire the critical thinking. I mean, I think that's what we all like kind of hope to do as parents. So 
That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. No, she, she definitely, definitely instilled it in me. Um, so it's, it is, it's possible. Believe me, critical thinking, skeptical thinking, um, or bullshit detector, I guess that you could commonly say <laughs> yeah. are important skills to learn and definitely ones that you can teach your kids. Awesome. And so obviously we will link to your book in our notes for the show, but if people want to yeah. find you on the internet, where, what are the places that they should look? Everything is at four pounds flower. That is my Instagram, my Facebook, my Twitter. And that is also the name of my blog Four pounds flower. So those are all the places you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this with us. Your book was great. And I mean, just awesome to talk to somebody who has the, a skeptical, critical thinking mind and also knows a fuck ton about food. So sometimes sometimes that doesn't go together. The food thank you. is strong. So thank I, you for being I, a rational we, voice. Yeah, yeah, we definitely, like, I when we were prepping here, I was like, should I put in this question about GMOs? Like, do we even want to go there? What do you think she'll say? And like, I was like, this, yes, wanna, go there. Like, we want, it to be, we, want, we want it to be a positive conversation, but at the same time, like, we can't, we got to be, you know, honest with ourselves and, and, and everything as we're doing this. So I, but that, that made me nervous. But then obviously, like, You're the way like, you start out, I was like, oh, no, that's, this is going to be okay. Like, she's going mean, to be... I think that the root of skepticism in, in on any topic is to ask your own questions. Don't accept mm-hmm. something that someone tells you as fact. Go do your own research and draw your own conclusions. And I think that the role that I've been falling into recently, like I started this saying, well, I would like to bridge the gap between people who cook and love food and academic history. But especially with this book, I realized that part of my responsibility was to begin to bridge the gap between foodies and scientists. Academic historians and scientists are not always the best communicators, right? Mm -hmm. So as someone who is a communicator, I want to put myself into that role to be that bridge, to take the information and to be able to tell people about it, to communicate with it. So I'm trying to do my best with that with uh, science now as well as history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think really well. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And I think I think people like Alton Brown definitely help help that angle that route, especially when they make it entertaining and interesting. Seriously, uh, like that. <laughs> he is yeah. he is one of my celebrity crushes. So yeah, uh, and Kenji <laughs> Kenji at Serious Eats too uh, is doing a lot, and of course David Chang, who will yeah. is literally scolding people. You know, don't be xenophobic. <laughs> like being afraid of MSG is xenophobic. So he's definitely coming from more of like a cultural standpoint. But uh, yeah, Kenji and Alton Brown um, are unafraid to be scientific, right? We have to not be afraid to ruffle feathers because if people never hear a a contradictory point of view, then how will their minds ever change? Yeah, and like Natalie said, especially in 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 a field that's so susceptible to to bullshit and woo and mm-hmm. the natural organic and, and, and everything like that. It's, it's, it's important to have those voices. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. So the reason that we love the internet this week It's not a weird meme page. It has nothing to do with Donald Trump or saying something nice about him. It's it's actually kind of a cool thing in the world of atheist activism. Um, We love the internet this week because of the Normalize Atheism campaign. And tonight we are thrilled to be joined by Mel Rice, who is the operations manager for the campaign. So Mel, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. 
So let's just start, like, before we get into the Normalized Atheism campaign, can you just give our listeners a little backstory about you, like, particularly how you became involved in, like, atheist activism? Sure. Um, I actually stumbled across the campaign by accident. Um, Mark Nebo started it in 2014. Um, He heard a speech that David Silverman was giving about the term atheist and how you should not be ashamed to use it. And he decided to start a campaign to encourage people to use the term atheist and atheism and to help erase a lot of the stigma and the stereotype that comes with the word, because it's, you know, we all know that as soon as someone hears the word atheist, it's automatically, you know, you're a Satanist, you're, you know, Satan worshiper, evil. Eating and, babies you know, study all the time. Sh- I wish. Exactly, exactly, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and studies show that when people find out that you are in fact an atheist, their trust in you dramatically decreases, even if they don't know you. Um, it's very sad. So, um, I was just perusing Facebook one day, and of course I'm friends with Mark on Facebook, and he had um, put out a Facebook post, anybody that wanted to volunteer to help with the campaign. I thought, well, this is awesome. So I messaged him, and he said, well, how do you feel about uh, working on the social media aspect part of it, Facebook, Twitter, that type of thing? I said, oh, I'd love to do that. So he had made me... um, social media manager, which was so fun. I mean, I love making memes. I do that a lot for Paleo Radio, work with Paleo Radio as well, and do a lot of memes for promotion and stuff like that. And um, I loved it. It was so fun. So then, you know, the one day I, you know, I thought I have all of these ideas. I'm just going to go to him and say, you know, it'd be really cool if we did some selfie shout outs, you know, Mm -hmm. like get pictures of people with the hashtag yeah. Sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna shut my window because my neighbor's dog is horrible right now, and everybody can probably to, hear that. Sorry. Yeah. 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 I yelled him. Quiet down. <laughs> but so I went to him and I said, "Listen, you know, these are a couple of the things that I would love to do. It would, you know, get a lot of notice. You know, selfies with the t-shirts or with the hashtag. You know, just." couple of fun ideas that I thought I had. And he was like, well, you know what? He said, how about we make you the operations manager? You can have, you know, day-to-day decisions. You're still in charge of the social media. You know, the things that you come up with as far as the videos. And um, I said, would be a really good thing if I reached out to some podcasters and be like, hey, support us. How about we come on and talk about it? And he said, start it. So I did. And it's just built from there. We um, went to ReasonCon last weekend. I guess it's been over a week now since we went. But um, we did a lot of stuff there. It was so cool. Uh, Mark actually got some videos with people like Matt Dillahunty and um, Gene Elliott and No Illusions and Shelly Siegel, just the amazing people supporting the campaign. So, you know, we posted those. We did pictures with the hashtag, hashtag normalize atheism. And it's, it's blown up. It's, it really has. A lot of people have really been very supportive and have reached out on what they can do to help as well. Not only like you guys having me on your podcasts and stuff, but just in general, sharing the hashtag, sharing the website that you can get the t-shirts on, retweeting the tweets that we have, sharing the different things. It's, it's been really amazing. 
Well, and it just, it seems like you were kind of like just the perfect person to do this. And I've been like Facebook friends with you for a little while now. And just your positive energy is just really wonderful to see. Like you, you just seem so supportive of everybody like in this community and everything. I think that that's like the uh, probably a lot of the like positive reception comes from just how just like awesome and welcoming you are as a person. And I think it's like, Aww. you know. Well, thank so you. I, so I think they made a good choice in like putting thank you. you out there to do this. Thanks. I, I find that if there's something that I really, really believe in, I go head first. And if it's something that really needs to be spoken out about, um, you're not going to get ahead by being pushy and being, if you want to start a movement, you have to lead by example. And you have to, if you, if you want to make atheism normal, you don't exactly want to put the show on that proves the stereotypes. So, you know, I'm, I'm all about people. I love people. I worked retail for 15 years. I love people. I love interacting with people. That's, you know, that's my passion. And this just seemed to fit right in with that. And so the, the idea of normalized atheism, like what, what does that mean to you personally? Well, to me, first and foremost, atheism is a descriptive word. Um, the definition for atheist is a person that has a lack of belief in a deity. And a lot of people disagree with me when I say this, but this, I do, I say this first thing, that's all it is. Being an atheist and atheism is nothing more than a lack of a belief in a deity. Who you are outside of that, if you're a humanist, if you're a Satanist, because we know Satanists are basically atheists. They just, you know, it's just a, a branch of that. Who you are outside of that term determines who you are. And destigmatizing the word and putting yourself forward as a humanist or as, you know, anything else beyond that is who you are. And I hope, we hope to find that the word atheist, when it's spoken about, when somebody introduces themselves, that they're not afraid to say, hi, my name is Mel, I'm an atheist, instead of having to hide behind words such as, hi, I'm Mel, I'm secular. Nothing wrong with that. If that's how you're comfortable, you know, yeah. you, you know, it's absolutely fine. But in order to normalize it and to help people understand that we are just like you, we just believe in one less God than you do. That's exactly. basically it. Yeah. No, yeah. And, I, and I like that because I think you pointed that out on Facebook recently. And I, I've kind of seen some posts that other people have made recently pretty much saying that, that like really by, by saying you're an atheist, yeah, that's what you're saying is I I don't believe in, in God, in any gods. Like, right. and so that's, that's it, but it doesn't, it doesn't instantly make you, I mean, just because somebody's like a fellow atheist, I'm not going to assume that they're like automatically an awesome human being. Just like, I'm not going to assume that they're or, like, that a Christian is a awful human being. It's like, everybody needs to show through their actions. And how exactly. they are. Or, even, or even that a Christian is a good human being because they're, yeah. <laughs> they're Christian. Yeah, exa yeah. Well, exactly. exactly. It's like you can't assign just all of the other positive or, neg like, or negative characteristics to somebody just based on that statement of faith or lack of. And exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Totally. There are some in every bunch. I mean, look at radical Islam. Look at Westboro Baptist Church. You know, my family yes. is still very, very religious. I wouldn't put them in the same category as Westboro Baptist Church. You're going to have people in every single walk of life that you would look at. And, you know, I've had people look at me and say, you're an atheist, you know, mm -hmm. after they get to know me. And 
that shouldn't come as a shock because I don't look at someone just because they're nice to me and say, you mean you're a Christian? You know, that's, (laughs) it shouldn't be that way. We're all human. And what we believe shouldn't determine how people view us. It's about love. (laughs) Well, yeah. And just in being a good fellow human to others. Exactly. And I I like that that, like just any way to get that message out there is really important. And I think just kind of harnessing the power of social media is super like productive and important in this. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. I didn't realize how, how, a simple hashtag could reach so many people and make such an impact. I mean, I was a newbie to all that when it, you know, when I first started and I didn't even do Twitter that often. And when I started with Twitter's, whoa, what? (laughs) I mean, it got pretty big. And so, you know, there are people that might kind of come across this idea or this hashtag or even just, you know, like podcasts like ours or whatever. And they might be like, you know, still in the closet atheists because there are places in the country where it's, a little bit more taboo to talk about mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. So like, what advice would you have for, for somebody who is still like, you know, say a young person who's, who's not really out about their atheism. To not be ashamed. Number one. Um, a lot of people, like when I, when I came out, I was leaving a very bad marriage and I was a questioning Christian and I felt guilty because growing up, you know, you were taught. Tell you to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, don't question, just believe. And I felt guilty because I felt like I was doing something wrong that, you know, I, I felt really dirty because, <laughs> you know, that, you know, you've been brought up for your entire life to believe in something. And then when you start questioning, it really, you know, it makes you feel guilty. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. If you don't feel safe to come out or you don't want to come out as atheist just yet, Find some place, like even on Facebook, um, a support group on Facebook or a, an atheist page on Facebook. There's a ton of them to where you can actually communicate with other atheists because that community is amazing. That's really, really important. Just, just like churches have community, community brings people together. It makes you feel not so alone and we know because we are involved in atheist community that there's tons and tons and tons of us. But if you're just coming out and you're questioning, you feel completely alone because you feel like nobody around you mm-hmm. is the yeah. same way you are. And that's, I mean, that's the great thing about the internet and, and people today who are, you know, kind of dealing with maybe feeling sort of alone physically in places because of their worldviews or whatever. And, the internet is a great place for, I mean, I got a message to my, um, I do this skeptical parenting page, which is, I mean, it's a lot of memes and articles and stuff, but I got a message from a, actually like a teenager for the first time this week saying that she likes pages like mine and Dan's because she is being raised in a devoutly Catholic family. And she's like, my parents are not skeptical parents, but, um, I'm glad that I have the internet too. And so it's, I think for anybody who's kind of doing what I guess like all of us are doing and what so many other people in this community are doing, it's like it's important because there are those people that are just looking for for a little bit of understanding and a place to kind of come into their own with their Exactly. Ideas. Exactly. And to have their questions answered because, yeah. I mean, like people like Matt, he's a brilliant, brilliant person when it comes to understanding the Bible. We as Christians believe what we're told about the Bible. 
and we don't dive deeper into it until we start questioning. At least I didn't. I didn't really start researching what the Bible was telling me until I started questioning. And then I started realizing this is messed up. You know, I mean, (laughs) you, you have a lot of questions and it helped me a lot because when I was coming out before I started dating my husband, he, he was an atheist for years. So when we started dating, he was the perfect person for me because I, you know, would ask him a ton of questions and he'd be able to answer them for me. So smart, read not just the Bible, but every religious text that he could get his hands on. And he just had the answers for me. And that's important too, because if you're questioning, it's really neat to have some, have that camaraderie that can answer your questions and help answer your questions for you in a logical way, instead of trying to sugarcoat it or cherry pick it to make it sound better than it is. Right. Or, or without just changing the subject to something else. And all yes. of a sudden now you don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Circular reasoning. That's, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So just having people to like be there with you on the journey to kind of understanding yes. a lot of this is really important. And then, so I think that this, your campaign can resonate with people who are still kind of coming into their own and understanding about their belief or lack thereof. But then I think that you've also struck a chord with people who are just really like stoked on wanting to get involved with this. Like um, Jeff, who was yes. a, is a friend of our show, uh, who you, I know are acquainted with now, Pittsburgh atheist. Like mm-hmm. he is, he's super like stoked about your campaign because I know that like this world of atheist activism means a lot to him and, yes. you know, just coming into his own. So how do you, like, how would you encourage or what do you suggest people to do who are like, you know, out there atheists, wanting to, you know, get involved with your campaign? Well, first and foremost, talk about it, educate. That's, that's the most important thing. I like with the hashtag, use the hashtag and things. Jeff was amazing. He wrote an article that we actually published on, on the page and, um, just talk about it, discuss it. If you, you know, post about it on your Facebook page, people are going to ask you, what does that hashtag mean? And then you can tell them, um, that is first and foremost, the first thing we encourage people to visit the store, grab a t-shirt because it says hashtag normalize atheism, and then take a selfie of themselves and post it on their um, social media. We put that on our page as well. And then we also have a gallery that's called faces of atheism where we upload those into so that people can see these whole bunches of difference of different people that, you know, all look totally different, but, believe the same thing that we're, you know, all the same people, but we look the same as your Christian next door. You know, we're no different physically. We're no different. We just believe different than you do. Um, we're always looking for volunteers. We actually have a volunteer page. So if anybody is interested, all they have to do is, um, message me directly. They can find me on Facebook or they can go to the page, the normalized atheism, atheism campaign page. Um, and they can, message me from there. I will get that. Um, Twitter as well. We're on Twitter at normal atheism. Just shoot us a message and we can get you into that group. We're always looking for people that find things that we can post on social media, like memes, articles, like Jeff's, Jeff's article was amazing videos. Um, and then just share and retweet what, what is on the page. That's important too. I love to see people share the things that we post, because again, there's that education aspect of it. When someone that's an atheist or someone even that's not an atheist come across it and says, well, that's, well, why would you normalize atheism? There's your education. 
you know, just, just like have a conversation, start the conversation. Well, see, exactly. And, and I was going to say the most important part about being an atheist is just being a total dick to everybody and telling them how stupid they are. Yeah. <laughs> the Dan approach to life. Am I, am I doing it? That, that is, that is I, not yeah. what I do. <laughs> it's so not what you do. No, it's so not what you do. And that, and that's the thing is that like this misconception exists and like, it's, it's actually, we're, we're all, a lot nicer than the stereotype. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's, I mean, I have, I have many groups that, you know, debate groups that I get, I don't so much debate in anymore, but I sit and watch. How? Yeah. No, I can't even do that. Anxiety (laughs) city. I mean, I can't like, I was in one today. I had to leave the group. It's like, this is just like, I don't even understand. Like this person cannot be serious. Yeah. And they're more hateful and mean than, you know, than we are. But we're the ones with the stereotype. That's why I kill them with kindness. You know, I'm I'm so sickeningly sweet to people that act like that and treat me like that. I am so sickeningly sweet that they probably get diabetes. I just I kill them with kindness because I, I mean, that's the only ammo I have, really, because, you know, I'm not super, super smart when it comes to things that I debate on. But like today, I had to leave a group because I was, you know, with this new healthcare thing and all this stuff coming out in the pre-existing conditions, you know, assault oh. victims and domestic violence victims are going to be a pre-existing condition. You know, do you know how infuriating it is to have to explain to someone in a Christian group oh, God. and have to explain and defend your quote unquote pre-existing condition? You know, I, I, mean, I, I can't, I, I can't, I can't even, it blows my mind. That's not what Jesus that. taught. At least when I was growing up, that's not what Jesus taught. Well, you know? I, I, yeah, would, I would, yeah. I would, I would even just back up the conversation and even ask why, like, you know, God decided to make assault in the first place. Like that, he, that was a choice. He didn't have to. Exactly. Exactly. God's, you know, God and in the Bible, they have, you know, exactly. In the Bible, like, that yeah. stuff was condoned, you know? And if you think about it, you know, and I'm, I, I say this a lot, but you know, back in biblical times, children were married off as young as eight years old. You know, when Mary was impregnated by God, she was 14. What's that saying? It's yeah. saying that she probably fucked somebody and then lied about it. Yeah, at fourteen, because they marry them off between eight and fourteen. But well, that's and the apologetic condemned. for that is that they're only well, they only live to be like you know thirty to forty, so that's <laughs> so, like midlife. Get, yeah, get started. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Oh. I just I don't understand. And then I get all I get all, ugh. So I have to leave, but. But I try to be I try to be good and I try to be nice because again like I said when you're trying to when you work on this campaign and you're trying to erase the stigma and the stereotype that atheists are untrusting and mean and nasty you don't want to come across as mean and nasty yeah. Yeah. you know you're proving you're proving their point for them and that's why I get so disheartened when I see things on Facebook and people you know actually being that way you know hateful and and you'll have it in every walk of life. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu. It doesn't matter who you are. But, you know, just I just love people. So I don't know how people could be so. See, I, and I don't I don't understand how you can love people after working in retail. Oh, I did for 15 years. I was management. Yeah. Right. yeah 15 oh years. God, and I, I do. So <laughs> I mean, I, I before I left, I remember one of my so I was management and I, one of my associates come up to me and said, you know, why are you so nice to people? 
why do you love people so much? And, you know, I had to step back and think, um, because they're people, what kind of question is that? You know, even, even the hateful right, ones exactly, for a minute, I'm like, I just people. want to scream at you, you know, but at the same time, it's like, you know, you don't know what's going on in that person's life. Why they're so, you know, when I get depressed and I get upset, I do get irritable and I get cranky and I'll, you know, you don't know what's going on in somebody else's life. And the best, the best approach is to kill them with kindness and just be nice because nine out of 10 times, if they're screaming at you and you're really nice to them, that rubs off and they do a complete 180 experience. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to edit that, uh, to say, <laughs> say, just kill them. Yeah. <laughs> just take out the kindness to kill them. Hey, you know what? And there then, was, there's been times where I really could have, but Yeah. <laughs> no, see, I think really, like, I think we just make Mel Rice the face of atheism in America because she is the nicest, most patient person. And so then, <laughs> then like, then everyone who has these notions about what an atheist is, they look at her and they're like, oh, yeah, never mind. Our, our bad. And We've then they catch me on a bad day. <laughs> and then they catch me on a bad day where, you know, my husband would be like, I don't know who you're talking about, but that's not who I'm married to. <laughs> But we're, but no, like I, I really, I am, I, I think you are the perfect person for this. And like, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. And I know you, well, so thank you, you for gave, having me. You gave all the places we can, or people can find the campaign online. We'll have it all in our show notes. And um, yeah, so I, I hope that we get you a little bit more support from doing this. Awesome. Interview. Thank you. So, thank you. You guys much. have been awesome. If you did enjoy listening, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes. Uh, if you have comments or suggestions, reach out to us at podcast at ascienceenthusiast.com. But if you do, like, don't send, like, some really stupid bullshit, like, I don't even know what this pamphlet was. Was, that, was that it, like, a manifesto? You know who you are. Yeah. yeah I don't know what it was, but I'm angry, and I raised my voice just now. And that's a moment that happened, and now we can all move on from it, because I've addressed my anger issues yeah. uh, you can also find our full podcast archive at least for now at scienceenthusiastpodcast.com we're going to be transferring to blog talk radio at some point um, working on the technology side there we'll keep you in keep you informed uh, also follow the podcast page on facebook and natalie's page my page um, just follow a random page like spread the love uh, but if you really 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 like our show like Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash TSE podcast. It's also listed in the show notes like 5,000 different places because um, we like money and hopefully you don't like money as much as we like money and then you can send us money and then now we have your money and but also that helps us support uh, helps support uh, the content that we're making and you get access to early episodes and uh, I mean you can get direct line of contact to us uh you know 24 7 and and we'll answer those 3 a.m phone calls that you have uh where you're just like drunk and not really sure what's going on and just kind of breathing really heavy and we're like who's there and then it just it gets really weird from there topic of another podcast but we know that not everybody doesn't like money as much as we don't not unlike money so if you don't want to give us your money so that we can turn your money into like beer and like blackjack and hooker, I don't know. Uh, just, just tell your friends and that's how we grow. Also, uh, you know, just keep listening because we appreciate you. And this is something that uh, uh, we, I speak for Natalie. We, we don't know why uh, you people listen still. Um, but but it's really, but thank yeah, it's really cool that you do, and it's really cool to to get feedback from you as well. So I mean, you know, just 
not, but not, let's be honest, not everybody's as cool as Trevor and Michael and Alice and Michael and Nathan and Felix and Michael again and Magnus and Sav, Hannah and Chris and James and Sarah or Josue. Uh, but we are grateful for them. Yes, we are. Thank you, everybody. I went off script on that. I don't know if you noticed. Did it sound I, like I went off script? Did it sound it, like I had all that it just, stream of conscious like actually written sound, out? It sounded awesome. It's it all that matters. Yes. It, okay. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Well, I, it's, it's, I stay up until 2 a.m. every single night mm-hmm. thinking about how to sound awesome and how to... How to all of that stuff. How to stop. Yeah. Uh, hit us with a quote. Okay. Rage Against the Machine is a monument to the smarter-than-thou political insurgent who doesn't have a plan beyond tearing up the present one, full of punchy slogans, but short on constructive action. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Wake up, we gotta take the power back, we'll settle for nothing now, and we'll settle for nothing later. It all feels good, but it doesn't do good. I still love it with all my heart, but it's futile to scream at everyone to wake up if you have no clue what they're supposed to do when they're woke. And that is a quote by Craig Jenkins that just Fuck has you, I won't do what you tell me. appropriate this week. You know, I thought I thought Rage was fucking amazing when I was like eleven. I saw them in concert when I was like, gosh, I could I've been like fifteen or sixteen or so, maybe I don't know. Um, but I I saw them. Oh my gosh, they were like in in so that that's what twenty two, twenty three years ago for me. Uh, they were they were just the shit for me, and I would yeah. I had my I had my stereo boombox all queued up, ready to record my mixtape that had had Bulls on Parade on it, and then there I got the long intro to it one day, and I was so excited, and I <laughs> and I listened to I listened to the shit out of that mixtape, uh, but like the whole mentality of everything sucks, let's burn it down. Uh, is appealing to I think eleven and twelve and thirteen years old, year olds For because sure. you don't have that uh, long term vision in mind. You don't have you have such a narrow view of what the world is, such a narrow idea of what's going to happen if if we actually burn shit down, uh, get rid of the government, get rid of law enforcement, and uh, the only rule is that there there are no rules. That's that is absolutely something that sounds awesome. Uh, if you're 12 or 13 fucking years old. Well, and and while that sort of, I don't know, like big action in one moment can perhaps change some things in the short term just because change is forced, that doesn't change worldviews, ideologies, and the actual things that help that are, you know, that continue to create these problems in the long term. And so real real change happens more slowly. Exactly, and what it does is it creates martyrs, and it and it further emboldens these people into what what are we talking? About? Are we talking about punching people for their I, ideology? I think we are. I think I think we are, and I think Damn that I know, I know, and I and I know this is this is a thing that I'm I guess not really allowed to talk about anymore based on rules I've read on the internet. But <laughs> well, and, and I, yeah. mind you, it's because you're white too is the other part. But that's so, that's a topic. So of there's so there's that stuff. But if I okay, so if I if I can say one thing about about this whole issue is that I like seeing people who otherwise I would hope share a lot of the same important worldviews and morals and and visions for how we want this like planet and human rights and all of this sort of stuff to look. People that share so many of the same views decide that over this one thing, like their deal breaker is I'm going to, if somebody thinks that they, that they don't want to take like 
violent action. And I'm not saying, and by saying nonviolence, I'm not saying inaction. Okay, like it's not the same thing. But you don't automatically become a Nazi sympathizer by just saying don't punch people. And if people can kind of maybe try to get off of this as the thing that continues to divide, <laughs> like or, or like the one thing that they can really talk about or offer any semblance anything. of, like, like let's let's fucking let's fucking stop it because it, it's me no because it's like I feel like I'm talking to my children, but <laughs> it is it is making. Well, what did an, I? My yeah. point earlier. Is yes, this exactly. Is the mentality of a twelve. 13. I and I think it's making an entire group of people. Lose Look, their goddamn minds. And lose their minds, but also lose their credibility. Mm-hmm. Be, be be better than this and just fucking stop. Because now, like, now they've heard me get mad at <laughs> Right. Even even our quote though, he says, I still love it with all my heart, but it's futile to scream at everyone to wake up if they have no clue where they're supposed to go when they're woke. Like that's like it's cool to be like, yeah, man, I wanna fucking punch some Nazis. I wanna I wanna shake things up, I wanna burn this motherfucker to the ground. That's great, yeah. Like I can I you hear me getting excited. Like, yeah, yeah. let's like yeah. let's kill somebody. Let's like kill a dude tonight. Like, what are you doing that? But <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> my attorney has advised me I cannot say I want to kill a guy tonight. But that's that's I mean that's I uh, that's great to have that fire saying. and to have that excitement to have that have that motivation and and to, and to want to do that because I mean don't get me like I want to fucking punch Richard Spencer but I'm not going to do it because I have I, I can think about what's going to happen next and then what's going to happen after that why am I actually doing this what is what is it accomplish and what kind of message is it sending to to not only other people that you know are also just equally angry inside and just want to like fuck shit up but. What, what does it send to the these people that we have disagreements with or even I hate to say it like the more moderate uh, <laughs> white supremacists that may that we may be may be able to win over with not punching them in the goddamn face I is it's kind no, of a silly conversation it, for us to it's even a, be having it is it's, it's a silly conversation and I guess the main message in it is to I don't know, like keep track of the common ground that you have with people that you're friends and allies with, have conversations about how to move forward in a way that can affect, you know, change in the most positive way possible. And I'm sure like this is the kind of thing like somebody could decide to give me shit for saying, but I'm just at the point where it's really, really frustrating that this conversation still exists. So can we can we maybe just fucking stop? No, because somebody on the internet is wrong, and I think I'm right, and you're going to hear about it because I'm a toxic person. Yeah, I know. I want to. I want to throw away the internet some days. Just like. Well, fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. <laughs> oh well, come back next week, everybody, because we will have an interview with David Gorski. Thanks for yeah. listening. I'm smiling when I'm saying this because we're going to end on a positive note. Fuck you. I won't do what you tell. Me. <laughs> but like, but like, except for like, come back and listen to us. Please like, listen. Us. Please listen to us again. Like, we, we, we joke, but, <laughs> but we, we we want we want the listeners, please, <laughs> and thank you. And we are sorry, but I'm not sorry for some of the opinions that I hold. I'm not sorry for any of the opinions I hold. That's awesome, and I admire that in you. I'm sorry for my moral ambiguity. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness.
The music you heard tonight was written and performed by Adam Johnson and was used with his permission. You can contact Adam at adamjohnsondc at gmail.com. This podcast is property of Not Narrow or Straight, LLC, all rights reserved.